what we're going to be talking about is the real alternative, the alternative which offers radical solutions and is in tune with the thinking of the general public. And you'll be hearing that from our two speakers tonight. So it's a great privilege to uh, welcome them, and I'll uh, introduce them both briefly now, and then I'll introduce them a bit more fully when they speak. So on my right, we have Natalie Bennett, who is the leader of the Green Party, and on my left, we have Molly Scott Cato, who is our lead candidate in the European elections coming up next year, and you'll be hearing a bit more about that during the evening. Natalie will be speaking for about 20 minutes, so from a national perspective, and you'll be hearing about our position on a lot of current issues and about why this party could offer some real solutions to the very many varied problems and issues that we're all concerned with. And if you saw our leaflets and you saw our posters around, you will understand some of those, things like the rampant privatisation that we're having to face just today with Royal Mail and um, many others, and you'll hear all about those and then Molly will be talking from a more regional and local perspective and uh, she'll be talking about, I'm sure she'll mention why it's important that we elect her next year as our first Green MEP for the region. So I'll introduce Molly when I ask her to speak, but I'm going to ask Natalie to speak first. Natalie will speak for about 20 minutes. And let me just tell you a little bit about Natalie before I ask her to talk to you. Uh, she's been Green Party leader for a year now and if you wanted to find a more difficult job to do than following the footsteps of Caroline Lucas. I can't think of one. Caroline was an extraordinary leader for the party. She put us into a really prominent position, had a wonderful profile, and uh, she took the decision to step down as leader because she wants to concentrate on being an MP for Brighton Pavilion. And I'm sure many of us in the party thought, well, what's going to happen next? Because who on earth can carry on that position, go out and speak to the public around the country? We actually had a good contested election, and we elected Natalie. And you'll hear tonight that uh, she can follow in Caroline's footsteps very well. She's a committed feminist. She's uh, a trustee of the Forset Society. And before she became the leader of the party, she was the editor of the Guardian Weekly. So she's a journalist by trade. So can I ask you to welcome Natalie Bennett, the leader of the Green Party. Well, thank you very much, John, for that lovely introduction. And I think when I think back a year ago to when I was first elected as Green Party leader, no one really knew how it was going to work out. Uh, because I was a party leader and not an MP. But what we've actually found happen is it's almost like we acquired another MP. So I get quite a lot of mail that wends itself towards me that's Natalie Bennett MP House of Commons <laughs> because people assume that if you are a party leader, you must be an MP. So it's almost like we've acquired a second MP and that was something I think we didn't predict. But one of the things that's also really great about being party leader and not an MP is that I can come along to evenings like this, that I can get around the country much more in the way that a party leader who is an MP, tied to Westminster, tied to their constituency, it just simply can't do. So it's lovely to be in Bath, 
And I'm slightly proud of the fact that I haven't got Bath written on my wrist because yesterday I was in Bristol and Western Supermare. Lunchtime today I was in Swindon. Tomorrow I'm in Taunton and Exeter. So I do actually remember where I am, so I'm still doing quite well on this three-day run, I think. But what I'm talking about tonight, I'm going to focus mostly on the, nat- the national situation. But the reason why I'm down here in the southwest, I'm going to very briefly mention, because last time we just missed out on electing a Green MEP, to br- sending a br- Green representative to Brussels at the last European election. And we're absolutely determined that they're not going to miss out this time. And that's one of the reasons why I'm very much focusing on the southwest. And I'll be down here certainly a couple more times on a big run before the election. Now, what I'm going to talk about, however, is mainly British politics, Westminster. And I'm going to start with a survey. The Fabians did a survey just a couple of weeks ago about the British public. And they asked them to consider the question, is our current economic model broken? And 67% of British people agreed with that statement. And only 15% of people actually disagree, actively disagreed. So 67% of people think that our economic model is broken. But if you've been following the news and looking at what's been happening at the party conferences of the three largest party conferences, you really wouldn't think that that was the case. You'd think they'd be up there saying, how do we repair this broken economic model? How do we change what we've been doing in the past two or three decades, globalisation, neoliberalism, privatisation? These have clearly failed. What alternatives are we going to offer? And the fact is, those of you who were following those party conferences will well know that there were no alternatives on offer. And it's worth thinking a little bit about why that current model is broken. Now, last night in Western Supermare, I was talking about food poverty and I actually had a fellow speaker from the food bank there in Western Supermare. And we were focusing on the fact that today, here in Britain, the sixth wealthiest country in the world, half a million people are today dependent on food banks to eat. Half a million people who, with shame, with horror, with embarrassment often only when they're very, very hungry or their children are hungry, are asking for help, are having to ask for help. And if we start to think about some of the reasons why that is, we come back to the fact that one in five British workers is on less than a living wage. 20% of workers who go to work, put their back into it, get their and take home, the amount of money they take home is less than enough money to live on. And just to focus on what those figures are, the national minimum wage is £6.19 an hour. The living wage for the country outside London, and this is by no means a luxurious figure, is £7.45 an hour. So it's a pound thirty an hour difference. Now, for many of us, that mightn't sound like that much. But at the moment, it's the difference between lots of people being able to simply put food on the table. It's the difference of lots of people struggling to pay the rent, people who are actually switching the heating off in midwinter and shivering because they cannot afford to pay the heating bill. And what we've had, this is 
we were in this situation after 13 years of a Labor government. 13 years of a Labor government that actually saw inequality increase on its watch. And what happened was that Labor government chose not to lift the minimum wage. Instead, what they did, almost surreptitiously, trying really hard to not let the Daily Mail or the Telegraph or Sky television notice, they gave those people family tax credits and housing benefit. And those were subsidies so that the people could continue to live. But they weren't really subsidies for the people. What they actually were was corporate welfare. Because a basic requirement of a worker is that they continue to live. Kind of comes with the bit of the job description that isn't written in, but is assumed. And yet, if you, particularly as a big company, are not paying your workers enough to live on, making them rely on benefits, making them rely even on food banks, then you are simply not paying your fair way in society. And of course, it's not just the hourly rate that's the problem. In British society at the moment, one in ten workers is working fewer hours than they'd like to. Now, I can remember as a feminist in the days when we were really celebrating that part-time work was getting around and was starting to be available, and that was great. But what we have now is lots of people who are being forced to work part-time because those are the only jobs available. And there was an interesting study done by the GMB union. Uh, it was in March. They looked at the study at the jobs advertised by the next clothing chain. And not only were more than 97% of those jobs on minimum wage or just a few pence above minimum wage per hour, what they also were was they were all 12.5 hours a week contracts or less. There's a magic figure when you multiply minimum wage versus 12 point, by 12.5 hours. It comes in less than the national insurance minimum. So they're employing all of those part-time staff, whether they want part-time hours or not, and not having to pay any national insurance for them. And that's the kind of thing I don't particularly want to pick out next. That's the thing that big companies all across the country are doing. And even more than that, there's the horror of zero-hours contracts. Now, do most people know what zero-hours contracts are? Okay, I'm, I'm getting some, some shakes, so I'll, I'll, I'll do the brief version of that. It means you're contracted to be available to work. You usually can't work for anybody else, but you don't know how many hours you'll get in any week's work. At the absolute, one of the worst examples I heard of was actually when I went to Oxford University and was talking to the students there. And one of the, uh, one of the students, his, his friend had left university the year before, and he was waiting at 6 a.m. every morning to get a phone call to find out if he'd be, have any work that day or not. And he could get to the end of the week having worked zero hours and earning zero pounds, and how he was supposed to pay the food bill or the rent or anything else is a really good question. Or if he was really lucky, he might get to the end of the week and work 40 hours. But he didn't know from day to day what was going to happen. And that's one of the horrors that we've got in our employment, in our workplace today, and one in three people on a zero-hours contract is under the age of 25. So this is something that particularly our young people are being forced into this uncertainty. And so what we've got is we've got a minimum wage below the living wage, we've got forced casualisation, we've got zero-hours contracts. So what we have is a society that's simply not providing jobs 
that you can actually build a life on? How do you create a life on that kind of employment? And of course, one of the other things that we have that those, many of those young people starting out with is a huge weight of debt, student debt from their tuition fees sitting on their shoulder. The fact is, people starting out now, many of them are going to leave university with £50,000 of debt sitting behind them. Now, people defending £9,000 a year tuition fees often say, oh, it's all right, at least half of the people will never pay it back. Now, aside from the question of what that means about the economic model of funding our universities and not money not being paid back, what's it going to be like going, through, like going through a couple of decades of your life with that weight of debt sitting on your shoulder, thinking any time you start to earn a bit more money, it's going to go off in those debt payments, thinking with that weight of debt sitting there, how could I possibly think about a mortgage, setting up a family, getting, getting my life really going? And that's what we're sentencing our young people to with our current economic model. And of course, we have the issue of food poverty with the food banks. But what we also have is an issue of fuel poverty, which I'm sure a phrase everyone in this room will be familiar with. And we have lots of people who are struggling to pay their bills. And we have a Labour government that wants to free, a Labour opposition that wants to freeze prices for 20 months, which would help a little bit. We have a Tory government that's thinking about taking away some subsidies, but isn't doing anything to tackle the real issue. Because we do need to deal with fuel poverty in Britain. But where we absolutely have to start, the forgotten issue in all of this is energy conservation and particularly home insulation. We have some of the leakiest homes in Europe. One pound in four that we spend on heating actually is wasted. It goes straight up through an uninsulated ceiling or out through a drafty door or window. And we currently have a government that is spending not one single penny of government money on dealing with this problem. And what's more, we have actually the news coming out today that they're planning to end programs that use money from the, fuel from the energy companies to insulate homes. And we're spending a lot of time talking about how we deal with an energy drought that's coming in our future, the fact that in a few years' time we've got a real supply problem. But what we're utterly failing to do is talking about how we can conserve energy. And if you think about home insulation programs, you create jobs, lots of jobs, very stable jobs, because even if we went at absolute maximum pace, it will take us decades to insulate every home in Britain that needs it. We cut carbon emissions and we tackle fuel poverty. But of course we are going to need to generate more energy in Britain in future. And there's a big debate going on at the moment about how we do that. One of the suggestions, of course I'm sure will be very close to the heart of many people in this room, is the suggestion that we have fracking. And someone was telling me today how fracking could potentially threaten the water of the Bath Springs. So it's an issue that's very close to home for you. There's big issues about fracking in terms of local environmental impacts. But there's also an even bigger, broader question than that, which is the fact that at the moment, of our known fossil fuel reserves around the world, 
we know that we've got to leave at least half of them in the ground if we avoid, we're going to avoid catastrophic climate change. We have to leave half of our known reserves in the ground. We absolutely should not be going out there looking for more. What we've got to do is work out how we can leave them in the ground. Because one of the problems that Caroline Lucas has focused on a lot in Parliament is what's known as the carbon bubble. You look at the value of our shares on our stock exchanges in Britain and around the world, and lots of them are big energy companies, the BPs, the Shells and all the rest of it. And the valuation on the stock market is based on their reserves that they have access to of fossil fuels. And half of those fossil fuels have to stay in the ground. So we've got a huge problem there, and that's what we should be focusing on, not fracking. Then, of course, we have the wonderful suggestion of nuclear, which once upon a time was going to provide us with energy that was too cheap uh, to even meter. Some people in the room are probably old enough to remember that one. Now, many of us will, over many years, have had debates about nuclear, and there's unresolved debates about issues of nuclear safety brought into stark relief, of course, by Fukushima, but also of what we do with the nuclear waste, which we haven't found any solutions for. But those are very old arguments that people tend to be entrenched in one side or the other, and you're not going to shift them. I actually don't need to go to any of those arguments to explain to you why nuclear isn't the answer. There's two reasons why it's very clear nuclear is no solution to our energy problems. First one is timeliness. The kind of plant, nuclear plant proposed for Hinkley C, there's been two of them built recently, and they took respectively on average 14 years to build and 17 years to bring online. Now we need to cut our carbon emissions now, we need to fill our energy gap in the next few years. 14 and 17 years is way, way too slow for the situation we're in now. And then there's the issue of cost. The government is proposing in the negotiations for Hinkley C that have been going on and on and on as they desperately hunt around the world for a financial partner. Will it be China? Will it be Russia? Will it be who knows? They're still hunting. But we're looking, they're looking in the negotiations at a £40 billion subsidy for nuclear energy a billion pounds a year for 40 years that would go on all of our energy bills. And that is definitely not the solution for energy that we need. And then, of course, thinking about our economic model, what we need to do is we do need some more energy. We need to conserve energy, but we need to supply it too. And what we need to do is renewables. We've seen down in Bristol, they're making real progress on solar, on wind, and indeed on tidal down there as well. And renewable energy is the direction we need to go, create jobs, build British industry, particularly the offshore uh, wind industry. We've got the real potential in terms of the, the engineers, the training, the technology we've got from the offshore oil industry, we can transfer to offshore wind. And... I've talked about the kind of jobs we have and the kind of energy we need. The other thing I'm going to focus on is the kind of public services that we need. Now, uh, John has already referred to the fact that today is truly a tragic day with the privatisation of Royal Mail. 
But that's just one example of what we're seeing. We're also seeing the wholesale privatisation of the NHS, the sneak privatisation of the NHS, because it's happening piecemeal. It's happening with contracts that are here and contracts that are there, and it's not really obvious to people what's happening. But I'm going to focus on one example to be clear about what's happening, because we have in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, there's a contract that's worth about £800 million a year that's being let at the moment. And they've shortlisted the companies, and it's the usual Circo and Circle and all of those. And this is a contract for aged care. And it's a contract that particularly includes end-of-life care. Now, in the Green Party, we believe that our NHS should be publicly owned and publicly run, and the profit motive has no place in our NHS, our health care. But I particularly believe that there's something obscene about making profits out of end-of-life care. That is simply unacceptable. But more than that, of course, we know what the privatisation model means. We've seen it with the railways, we've seen it with a whole range of other services. What privatisation actually means is you're taking public money and putting it into private profits. You cut the pay and conditions of staff and you cut the quality of services. And that is what privatisation means. It's an entirely failed model. It clearly has not worked for anybody in the system except for the shareholders. And we say in the Green Party that this privatisation model has clearly failed and has to stop. And more than that, we say that we have to reverse the privatisation. And a great place to start is the railways. We want to bring the railways back into public hands. And Caroline Lucas has now, before Parliament, a private member's bill that would do just that. <laughs> That's usually the point where that happens. Um, <laughs> Because we all know that you know, we need a better rail system. We desperately need it. We shouldn't be spending 50, 60, 70 billion pounds on HS2, which would simply focus economic development even more on London. When we're talking about HS2, I really only have to tell you one figure. On the, own, on the consortium's own figures, 72% of the journeys on HS2 would be people going into London. So anyone that tells you HS2 will help the economies of the Midlands and the North is absolutely kidding themselves. But what we do need is public investment that's not being siphoned off into private profit into all of what I call the low-speed ones around the country. And I bet you could give me a few examples of some low-speed ones around here. Investment in better bus services, investment in walking and cycling. We need to change our transport system, invest in it, but we need to do it in a way that works for local transport. So, one of the things that I find is really interesting, when I talk to, when I talk to a room like this and say renationalise the railways, I've never yet not got a positive response. But it's really interesting, because when I talk to journalists, they sort of reel back in horror and go, oh, that's too radical for the British people. We can't possibly, you know, talking about renationalisation... And yet I started off by saying that 67% of British people think our economic model is broken. Well, about 75% of people think we should renationalise the railways. And yet somehow, in our current political life, 
media life, there's a feeling that this is too radical to say, that we can't say this. And when I say we want a publicly owned and publicly run NHS, that gets more than 90% approval in the polls. And yet where in our political debate is that being said except by the Greens? The sad thing is it isn't. Who's saying that globalisation has hollowed out our industries, left us doing banking, retail and services? And, you know, banking, we're just so good at banking, that's why we should keep doing banking. So good at banking that we entirely broke the whole global economy. And what we need is a smaller banking sector. What we need to do is bring manufacturing and food production back to Britain to ensure a stable, secure food supply, to ensure good jobs from manufacturing, supplying things we need locally. We need to build a strong local economy built around small businesses, cooperatives, local shops, economies in which money goes round and round in the local area, not with the big multinational company that's there, with the big store on the edge of town, with all of those self-serve tills and those few staff on the minimum wage, and you put the money into there, and it swooshes off out of there, off to head office, and very often straight off to the nearest tax haven, convenient to there. That is a model that's failed. What we need now is that model of bringing manufacturing and food production back, strong local economies, small businesses, cooperatives. And that, in short, is the green alternative that I'm offering to you tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much, Natalie. That was uh, given us a bit of a challenge to follow up. Before I introduce Molly, I should have done the housekeeping before we started the meeting, so I'll do that now. If there is a fire alarm that goes off, we have two fire exits. One's over there in the corner, and one's the entrance where you came in, over there. And if anyone needs to use a toilet, there's a disabled toilet through that door and just to the right, and the toilets themselves are otherwise down the stairs to the left. There's one on the landing, a unisex one, and then there's the ladies and gents on the ground floor. Okay, so that's the housekeeping. Uh, the other thing I should have said at the beginning was that uh, the reason why we're being privileged with Natalie here tonight is that she was invited to speak to the UK Youth Parliament, which is meeting in Taunton on Saturday. And so she had to come down to the southwest and... Because she was coming down to the southwest, she said, well, let me come down for three days and help you with the European campaign. So she's come down, she's giving us a hand here, she's been to Swindon, she's been to Western Supermare, she's spoken in Bristol, and she's going to be speaking elsewhere. And when we come to talk about the European campaign, well, we were less than 1% away from getting our first MEP elected in the last European elections, and we're determined that we're going to succeed this time in the southwest. Uh, we have our select candidates selected. We have a list of six because the election is done on a proportional voting system. And so the more people who vote green, the more chance we have of getting one elected, two elected, three elected. Six. <laughs> if we get one elected, then the person who will be elected is Molly Scott Cato, sat on my left. If we get more than one elected, then one of the other candidates is also here, and I'll just introduce him now, Ode Elisedi, who's come to uh, uh, watch the proceedings and has been speaking at meetings as well. 
Right, so I'll introduce Molly a bit more. Molly is, uh, lives in Stroud in Gloucestershire, and she's a councillor on the district council, and she's actually the lead uh, leader of the Green Group on Stroud District Council, where we have five councillors, and uh, you also have an independent, I think, in your group as well. Uh, she's also the finance speaker for the party at a national level, and she's a professor of strategy and sustainability at Roehampton University. So, Molly Scott Cato. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Thank you, everybody. It's traditional at this point to say how nice it is to be here, but I can say that with genuine enthusiasm, since this is the place I come from. And uh, probably most of you know that I grew up in Bath and went to school here, and uh, so I know Bath pretty well, actually. I also like speaking in Bath because you've got a Liberal Democrat MP, and uh, the, Liberal Democrats are <laughs> the Liberal Democrats are a great target for us in this election, and uh, we think they're going to help us get elected, actually. I noticed from this little handout that's been going around here that Don Foster has said that he is, has moderate concerns about fracking, and uh, to me that's a Liberal Democrat all over, isn't it? Um, Obviously, we are the party that is genuinely opposed to fracking, and that is one of the reasons why we are claiming to be the real alternative, which is the theme of our meeting here tonight. It's also good to be here because I know that actually last time around at the European elections, Bath had the fourth highest percentage voting green in those European elections. So I'm going to leave you now to spend this next sort of 15 minutes or so working out who the top three were. Then I'll come back and test you at the end. You can tell I work in a university, can't you? So, why should any of us get excited about the European elections? Well, Natalie's already said a few words about the media, and actually the filter of the media is so opaque that we don't really get to hear very much about what happens in Europe, in the European institutions, or in the European Parliament. So I'm just going to fill you in on three things that happened this week, just this week, in the Parliament in Brussels, the kind of things that really affect our lives, but that we just don't get to hear about. So firstly, on the 8th of October, there was a big debate about tobacco, about how tobacco would be regulated. Now, you won't be surprised to hear that there was a lot of corporate lobbying on <coughs> vote, all sorts of pressure to weaken proposals on control of tobacco. And actually, as a result of that, the Greens failed to have their proposal accepted, which was to control tobacco more, because the other groups in the Parliament were not interested in protecting public health. So that's a reason for having more Greens there, better protection of public health. Second thing, shale gas. That was the next day, 9th of October. This is the other thing that strikes you when you follow more what happens in Europe. Actually, they're really busy apart from the UKIP ones who don't turn up, but the rest of them are, are, are very busy making important policy. So, 9th of October, the European Parliament voted to revise EU legislation on environmental impact assessments so that fracking would have to be covered. So, if the Greens hadn't put this forward, if the Greens hadn't supported this, you would be able to have fracking, to just set up fracking, without carrying out an environmental impact assessment. That was only passed by 21 votes. So you can see how important it is that across Europe we have Greens there making these, this case, protecting the environment. The last thing also happened on the 9th of October. God, I think I'm going off this job. I'm going to be really busy, aren't I? <laughs> 9th of October, there was a debate on aviation safety. You may have heard about this one. It made a tiny little snippet right at the end of the news. 
Again, the Greens had proposed to reject the new rules on the number of hours that pilots could spend flying because they felt that that would lead to a reduction in passenger safety. Now, this one the Greens lost, and so that has affected the safety of anybody in this room who's still flying, and I won't ask who those people are. <laughs> um, so, there's a lot of stuff gets done, a lot of important stuff gets done by Greens in the European Parliament. It's also important to us, of course, because the Greens are a powerful group there. We're the fourth largest group, and we have 58 members. So this, this makes us very credible in Europe, in a way that we're not in UK politics, largely because of the appalling electoral system that we've got. So it's important that we talk about Europe, that we make a big issue about Europe, both because it's important to protect social and environmental standards, but also because Greens really have power in Europe, and we are making a difference every day. We also have our scepticism about how the European Union institutions work. We, we share some of the scepticism of the British people on that, I would say. But enhancing the Parliament and using its powers fully is an important part of the reason why I want to join that Green Group after May next year. But perhaps the most important reason why I think you should take Europe seriously is the one that we actually tend to overlook quite a lot. And the reason that way back when we set up the coal and steel community and then the European community. And the point of these associations was to build closer relationships with our European neighbours. So the reason, the reason we wanted to have those European Union institutions there is that for hundreds of years we've been incapable of living peacefully with our neighbours in Europe and our mutual history was scarred by repeated wars. That's why the very men and women who had fought the last war decided that to prevent war happening again they had to build close economic, social and cultural ties with the other countries of the continent. They built those ties with people they'd been fighting just a few years before, and it was their commitment to the future so that their children wouldn't have to fight again. And as a person who has three children of war-fighting age, I consider that an absolutely crucial reason why I want to become a part of Europe, and I want to argue that we should stay as part of the European Union. Now next year is going to be 2014, it's going to be the European election which I'll certainly be focused on, but it's also of course going to be the centenary of the beginning of the First World War. And I'm sorry to say that there are the plans being made now for what I can only call celebrations of the outbreak of the First World War. And of course that led directly into the Second World War, which both of the wars were so destructive. I think it's really important as part of this European campaign that we make a link between the 2014 campaign, it's called the No Glory campaign, very appropriate here in the, in the Friends Meeting House, a campaign that we should not celebrate war, that we should make an absolutely strong point about avoiding any sort of glorification around the commemoration. And at the same time, we should link 1914 and 2014 and stress the importance of the original peace mission of the European Union. Because the single market that most of our MPs have, have focused their minds on is all about profit, development and growth. And actually it's marginalising this peace mission and also because of its causing competition between European countries it's actually increasing the very sorts of tensions that the European Union was set up to, to undermine and to prevent from turning into wars. It's absolutely vital that we, that we defend the European community and if we don't manage to do that, the consequences for our children and grandchildren will be unthinkable. So, that's why I think Europe's important. That's why I want to win this election and go to Brussels. But what have I got to do with the South West? Well, I've got to confess that when I first 
started campaigning, when I first considered campaigning in this region, because it's a vast region that stretches from Tewkesbury across to Bournemouth and down to Penzance, so it's a kind of enormous area, which is why I sympathise with what Natalie's saying about renationalising the railways. So I spent an awful lot of time on First Great Western being late recently. <laughs> um, so once I, when I was thinking about that, it seemed like a very large region, but actually once I've started getting involved in travelling and meeting people up and down the region, I'm actually having a, a really great time. I had a really nice time in August, I had three days in Cornwall, lots of cream teas and I just realised what an amazing part of the world we live in, actually. I mean, I can't think of another part of the country that would be nicer to campaign in. And it's not just about the natural beauty, although, of course, we all value that, but it's also because the very strong communities that we create and the way people treat each other in the West Country. And I think it's absolutely true, and I know we all say this because we all like living here, but you can tell when you get on a train and you get out of London, because people are just so much nicer. Um, anyway, I've always felt very much a part of the Southwest, and I can genuinely say that all my genetic material comes from this part of the world. I don't think I have any Saxon um, genes at all. And um, I've had my, my mum's been ill for quite a while recently, and I've had her working on this, and she's got a nice little you know, um, family tree, which I'm going to put up on our website, just to prove that. Um, so I've got very good local connections. I also think that we have a wonderful lifestyle here and a very sensible attitude to life that we should actually take into Europe and share more with other countries in Europe. I think that when people perceive the UK, they often perceive the sort of thrusting, competitive kind of Thatcherite model of the South East, which I feel is quite a different culture from, from the kind of culture we've got here in the South West. And it's something I'm very proud of and that I'd like to take into Europe and share. We're actually quite a, a highly educated bunch in this part of the country, but we don't dedicate the whole of our working lives to, to working hard and making a pot of money. We're much more focused on the finer things in life, like our excellent food and our beautiful landscapes. In fact, um, I, was, yeah, I was thinking I was going to say this. It's unlikely anybody in the room is going to disagree with me about this stuff, obviously. But um, I, I went up to see my mum in hospital this afternoon and I jumped on the bus and there was a lady there and we had a chat along exactly these lines. You know, she'd just spent the afternoon on the allotment. She was saying what a wonderful, just, you know, growing her food, being outdoors. It was just, yeah, that's what makes life worth living. And I think in the West Country, people really understand that. This is a very green vision, of course, a very green vision of life with a focus on quality rather than quantity and on relationships with each other and with the natural world, rather than storing up cash in the bank. I think the European Union institutions need to hear more about that sort of vision, and that's something I'd like to take with me when I'm elected next May. Now, as Greens, we very much value what Europe has to offer. The commitment to a cosmopolitan outlook, peace and cultural exchange, as I've already discussed, and the many directives on environmental protection and limiting the drive towards wasteful production. And I share with, with Greens that support for Europe and that enthusiasm for what Europe's done. But I also share some of the concerns around the way it's not always easy to understand what goes on in Brussels and the way we sometimes feel a great distance between ourselves and the European institutions. This campaign we're going to be fighting next May is actually going to largely focus on two issues. One issue is, are we going to stay in the European Union? And the other, the other issue is, will UKIP win the election? And I think it's absolutely crucial that we argue very positively to stay in the European Union, because there is a serious risk that people might actually vote to leave. And um, polls for the West Country, for the South West, show that the majority of people here actually think we should leave the European Union. 
And as Greens, we think that will be a disaster for environmental protection and also, as I've already argued, for the peace mission. So, as Greens, we are very strongly in support of staying in the European Union, although we also support the idea of a referendum because we think that, as a democratic party, people have the right to choose. But there are also reasons to be inquisitive about what happens in the EU and question whether it serves our interests. I don't like to think of this as Euroscepticism. I think it's actually just being a critical friend, and that's how I'd like to think of myself if I became an MEP. I hope I wouldn't get completely go native, although that does seem to happen to a lot of people. But I'd, I'd like to think I could also be critical of those institutions and try and find ways of making them work better for the people I was representing. So another thing that's important to say about me, as John's already mentioned, I know a little bit about finance. I've been working on issues to do with green economics and finance for about 20 years now. I actually, the most interesting thing I've ever done for the Green Party was serving on a national committee for the No campaign, which was the campaign that kept us out of the Euro, actually. It was the most successful campaign I was ever involved with because we knew we were successful because if we ever got as far as a referendum, we knew that uh, we would have lost that campaign because they would never let us have a referendum unless it was going to go their way. So um, it was quite exciting. I used to go to London and meet all these very posh politicians. But, you know, I learned a lot about the euro then. I've always opposed it. Almost all the economists I know felt it was completely unworkable as a system. And I think that actually gives me quite a lot of credibility now in talking about the eurozone crisis because I was, I was in at the start and I was critical at the start. At the moment, this is the key crisis facing Europe, and it's actually causing a, a political crisis. The single currency project, which was always, in my view, a political project, not an economic one, is causing tensions between the countries of Northern and Southern Europe. While the policies being followed by the EU institutions are alienating Europe's people and leading to votes of up to 20% for far-right parties in countries including France. France, the Netherlands, and Finland. It's absolutely shocking to think that large proportions of people are voting for far-right parties in those countries. And it's a direct consequence of what's going wrong with the economic model and with the single currency. The central policy issue facing Europe is this financial crisis and the crisis of the single currency. And I really feel I've got some authority to speak on these issues. And I would like to be able to go to Brussels and, and contribute to sorting them out. In fact, the most exciting, radical and interesting work being done to get a grip on banks and what's going wrong in the finance sector in the European Union is coming from the Green Group. Sven Giegold, who is a member of the European Greens, is working hard to introduce much stronger rules on the kind of financial products, what are called derivatives, which are basically just gambling operations and are so destructive to real economic activity. Philippe Lamberts, who's a member of the Belgian Green Party, who I met last year in London, has been working to limit bankers' bonuses and has successfully driven that policy through the Parliament. So I'd like to share my knowledge and expertise about finance and about the Eurozone with these really constructive um, Greens working already in the Parliament and help to build an economy that works for citizens rather than just making profits for corporations. So, onto the numbers. It wouldn't be a political speech if I didn't say something about the numbers. And actually, the numbers look pretty good for us. Two people, both of you, have already said that we were less than a percent off getting elected last time, so I don't have to say that again. But I will say it again, because it's really important. We were very close to getting elected last time in the European election. The way the voting system works is that you, you basically allocate seats on the basis of the largest number of unrepresented votes. 
and the largest chunk of unrepresented votes when the last seat was given away was the green chunk, and it was very close to the, the last Conservative seat to be taken. So less than a percent. We can definitely do better next time, and that's what convinces me that we can, we can win this one. Our support and our profile have both increased greatly since then, and particularly in, in areas in the southwest. I'm not going to say which areas, because I'm still going to ask you that question at the end. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Richard. Um, in the last European elections in 2009, the Green Party beat the Labour Party in the southwest, and I'm also sure we'll be able to do that next time. Labour is aimless and discredited, and not a party that people favour in the southwest. So, what about the Liberal Democrats? I've already mentioned them. I've already mentioned your popular MP, Don Foster, who I personally think is utterly discredited by his association with this appalling government. And, again, the polls suggest that... The polls agree with me. The polls suggest that people agree with me. The most recent poll had the Liberal Democrats at just 7%. I've got to say, because I'm a Green, I've got to stand here and be honest and say that I think of all our MEPs, Graham Watson, who is a Liberal Democrat and who also went to school in Bath, like me, I say that because the paper won't report me, but I also went to school in Bath and so did he. He, I think, does a professional politician's job. However, my target is to beat him and again the polls suggest that we're on target to do that. The latest poll that asked people specifically about the European elections and how they would vote in that election showed that we were on 12% of the vote and the Liberal Democrats were on just 10%. Now, 12% is easily enough to win a green seat. So we've got, to, we've got to carry on campaigning. We mustn't be complacent about that, but we should be confident that this is definitely a winnable seat for us this time around. It's because I'm so confident about that that I'm able to say something nice about Graham Watson. I could say nasty things as well, but I won't. If you th I don't know how many people know this, but it's a rather depressing fact that the MEPs we've got at the moment representing us in the South West are three Tories, two UKIPs, and the aforementioned Liberal Democrat. Now, I don't know if you know who any of these people are, but I recently had to respond to an interview with the Earl of Dartmouth, who's top of the list for UKIP on the, the local politics show. I just, I mean, I think he did have a speech impediment, so I've got to be careful, but I, I, I just found it incredible to try and follow what he was saying, actually. He was completely incoherent. And I just don't believe that those people are representative of the views of the people of the South West. Part of the explanation for that is that more radical people are less likely to vote and also that young people are less likely to vote. So it's really important that we all encourage people, make them realise this is an important election, and make them realise that actually we can win and that voting green really counts in this election. So it's vital that you all get out and do that. And if we do that, then it's perfectly feasible. In fact, I think it's, it's a very winnable seat, and I, I'm confident that we can win next May. So, just to close, I want to share with you something about Twitter. Um, I've started tweeting fairly recently. I was very reluctant. I was a very reluctant twit. But um, I was persuaded that it was impossible to get elected to anything unless you started tweeting. So I've done that. So please follow me on Molly for Europe, figure four. Um, one of the things that you realise when you start doing Twitter is that you have to summarise your ideas into tiny little snippets. And actually amusing hashtags are a very good way of doing that. Although it's also quite worrying when you start doing Twitter because you start to realise how many policies have actually been made you know, in the kind of thinking that enables you to, to convey what you want to say in 140 characters. 
And uh, yeah, I think we can all think of examples of policy made that way. The other slightly weird thing that happens to you is that you start seeing the whole of your life in terms of these little hashtags, you know, little tiny ways of summing up what you think about things. So obviously the hashtag for this evening is hashtag real alternative. Um, I'm sure we both used that one. But uh, my favourite hashtag of the moment is culture of the shameless, which, although it's rather long, I think it does sum up a lot about what's going on in our political system right now. Culture of the shameless! <laughs> um, yeah, so it's true, it's true in the European Union, it's true in Britain. We are the real alternative. Whether you think about the issue of bankers' bonuses or the protection of passengers through reduced flying hours, or the need for people to save seeds and protecting their ability to save seeds to use the following year. All of these things are areas where the Greens have a different position, a position that's different from the, basic, the, the three other parties that are basically supporting the neoliberal consensus. There's a massive range of issues that the Green Group in the European Parliament is offering the only real alternative to this agenda directed by the corporations. So if you're happy with life as it is now, then you can carry on voting for people who got us into the mess we're in. But if you want something different and better, if you want a real alternative that represents the way we in the South West want our lives to be, then you need to be voting Green in May next year and making sure that we send our first ever Green MEP to Brussels. Thank you very much. Right, thank you very much, Molly. That was wonderful. I'm going to invite one of my colleagues, Lynn Patterson, to come and join us at the table. Um, and I'm asking to do that simply because I, kn I know I'm going to need a hand uh, keeping you all under control during question time. Uh, I'm aiming to finish this by half nine at the latest, so we've got about an hour for questions. Uh, let's see some hands go up. Right, because we haven't got a microphone... I think it might be sensible to ask people who want to ask questions, when they do ask their questions, to actually come to the front to ask it, so that everyone can hear it. So could you put your hands up again, who wants to ask? Just standing up is enough. Okay. Uh, who should we go for first, then? I'll let um, you choose. Let's, let's do man, woman, man, woman, okay? Woman, so, man, Okay. <laughs> right, right at the back there. Do you want to see? I don't see one right away. Um. Well, <clears throat> start with a very quick question, and then there's a request. Uh, do you think it would be a good idea in the run-up to the next election to actually place an advert when Loud. the next when the next um, telephone directory comes out? Because um, when we were trying to do something about Hinkley. I tried for days to find out who the MEPs were for this area, and I couldn't find it, and I couldn't find it. You're not here. Sorry, um, do you think it's a good idea if we actually put an advert in the next telephone directory saying who the prospective MEPs are with their email and their telephone number? Because that way you're actually you know, establishing claiming space. And my request is, be, before the last election, about um, one, two, three weeks before, I think it was in the Observer, there was a double-page 
spread about the Tea Party and all the prominent Tories um, who were in the Tea Party have now got places in the Cabinet and they are all fulfilling their promises to the Tea Party, to the Pan-Atlantic Monetary, uh, whatever you want to call it, and I believe they are traitors and I think if we could find that article we could actually use it in the next election to prove that their loyalty was to some alliance that was making money and not to the British people. So it was some time just before the next election and our local library doesn't have things on microfish. So anyway. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, th I think it would be okay for speakers to just stand rather than to have to fight your way to the front if that's agreeable. And sing out loud. And speak up, John. Yes. Yeah. Should we, should we take a couple of questions and do it in batches? That might be the easiest thing, I think. All right. Yeah. So everyone gets got to be a good yeah. chance. That so do you want to... This gentleman I'm over there at the back. Um, I'm a dissolution socialist. Um, I can't bring myself to vote Labour again. And I'm looking for a new home. But I want someone, or I want people or a party that in a way expresses a sense of incoherent anger that I have, and I think most people in the share as well. And I think the whole thing around privatisation, around the Royal Mail, is a fundamental feeling of unfairness. And that the bastards who are the bankers have got us into this mess are not the people who are paying for it. And there's, there's a fundamental disconnect. Everybody knows this, but the way that the media and the politicians talk about it is that they just don't address that. And I want people and a party to be able to come out with, with what is, in a sense, a, another version of common sense that, that everybody around us can hear and feel and share with, which, which is about the fact that the rich have got us into this mess and it's the poor that we make pay for it. The problem I have with the Greens is that um, I agree with nearly everything you said in the way of policies, but there's, I can sometimes feel that the Green Party is a bit like uh, if you were treating a case of the measles that you paint over, that you address the symptoms and not the fundamental cause, which is neoliberal capitalism. And the fundamental unfairness in that, because it makes the rich rich and the poor poorer, and all the environmental degradation and resource depletion that goes on is because it's, a, it's about profit and not people. And I, I would like to see a, a, a clearer message, a more distinct message that takes the example from UKIP, which uses that clear and fast language in the pub language to get over complicated ideas, simple bad ideas, but, but that ability to do that, to, to, to get over big complex ideas and simply and channel that anger and, and, and frustration that most ordinary people feel uh, into it, so that you are a real alternative that can be, people can identify with. Right, thank you for that. I think we've got two very different questions there. So I think we'll well, well, all right, I'll, I'll, tie, I'll tie the two questions together. Um, a little in which you were talking about the Tea Party and you were talking about the Tories and our government. And I'll point out the fact that the last figures that were out, half of the Tory Party's funding comes from the financial sector. 
And more than that, what we have, and it's really, I think, quite astonishing that what David Cameron did at Tory party conference in just, just recently finished, he said, we are the party of big business. He was there defending big business, the big business that's doing all of the damage that I was talking about before. And he was there saying, that's what we are. And it's great to see honesty in politics, but I think it's also very telling. And I think that your point about the, uh, the telephone directory, I think that points at a problem that we have with the European Parliament, which is, as Molly said, I'm not going to do a quiz, but you know, if you mentally think of how many MEPs from the South West you can name, if you can do all of them, you're doing pretty well, even for someone interested in politics. And yet this is a really important position, as Molly was outlining. And yet what we have with the three largest parties in particular is lots of people who didn't quite make it to the Westminster selection, so they go for Brussels as the second choice. And we regard Brussels as really important, as really providing a foundation of workers' rights, a foundation of consumer rights, they might have done so well on horse meat, but hey, you know, there should be consumer rights there. Environmental standards, human rights standards, that's what Brussels is there for, and the MEPs are really important. And in terms of your question about anger, it's a really tough one, actually, because I am very angry, but you have to express that anger in a way that people think, yes, I'd like to vote for you. And someone yelling and screaming and beating the table doesn't tend to attract votes as a general rule of thumb. And so I do generally tend to operate on the, what I hope is the level of powerful argument because the arguments are really powerful. And I'll quote one figure at you. In 2011, the richest 10% of people got 12% richer. Now, I'll bet if you think back to 2011, you didn't feel richer than you did at the start of 2011. And I'll pretty well bet for most people in this room, you feel poorer now than you did at the start of 2011. But the rich are still getting richer. And actually, to pick out another figure, which I think is really important, although it sounds quite technical, wage share is the percentage of GDP each year that goes into wages. It's pretty simple when you think about it. Over the past 50 years, the wage share has gone down 10%. So 10% of all of our economic production that used to go to working people is now going off into company profits, into the rich, into the tax havens. We have lost 10% of our whole economy that's been stolen from us by the rich. And we need to say things like that. But what I try and do is say them in a way that's not too shouty, that people have a chance to listen to and appreciate. And we also have to say them in language that appeals to a broad range of people. That's one of the things I always very much try and do. And as you say, we need to bring it down to the realities. The reality of the bedroom tax, for example. Now, I'm really proud of the fact that Brighton and Hove Council, which is the only green-run council in the country, although we're there as a minority administration, so we can't always do everything we'd like to do, 
Brighton and Hove Council was one of the first councils in the country to say, we will not evict because of the bedroom tax. And I've been up and down the country battering at Labour councils to say, adopt the same policy. And it's been a real struggle. A few of them have, but it's been a real struggle. Now, I'm sure most of you probably have some awareness of the bedroom tax. But what you might not know is that the government says it's trying to do this to free up all these homes that, you know, then people who are overcrowded can move into. But 95% of the people who are paying the bedroom tax now have no option to move. They have nowhere to go. There are no smaller council homes available. So this is simply a tax, a huge hit on people's income that were already inadequate, that were being cut down. So that's the kind of things that we're passionate about. But you asked, why don't we have as simple a message as UKIP? And that's an interesting one, because we often debate this in the Green Party ourselves. And you can actually see why the UKIP message sounds so attractive. It's so simple, seductively simple. We stop immigration and get out of Europe, and life will be wonderful. Every problem will be instantly solved if we do those two things. And I don't have a message as simple as that, because I don't think there are such simple solutions in the world. I'm trying to boil down everything I said before about we need to restructure our economy, make the minimum wage a living wage, renationalise the railways. And the kind of phrase that I'm working with is we need an economy that works for the common good. Yeah. But I'm not going to say we just need to do these two things and everything will achieve that. It is much more complicated than that. But we have to boil it down and get those messages across. And that really is what very much what we're trying to do. Thank you, Nathan. Okay. I also agree with you about the need for us to, to be better about the kind of messages that, that we project. And I think in the party, we, we're basically a bit too brainy sometimes in the way we think about things and talk about things. And we, we have to, we have to realise that politics is more about passion and less about having the right answer. Um, I haven't answer, asked you the quiz answer yet, have I? Yes, I, will. Um, I mean, it is noticeable that the Green Party Conference, the quiz is the best attended event, and I'm not sure that necessarily is good for a political party. Um, but on your point about socialism, I mean, I think that here we have... It's partly our fault because it's very... What we're saying is so radical, it's quite difficult to just go out there and challenge absolutely everything about the capitalist system. But we are, I think, genuinely challenging that system... And um, we've got three economic policies that I think would... I mean, we don't have to say we want to end capitalism. We just have three policies that would transform our economy so much that that would no longer be a debate. One of those is about money. This is the one we passed at our most recent conference. Um, we would take the power to create money away from banks and, and create money as credit through the public sector. So it would be for our benefit, not for the private profit of banks. This is a hugely radical policy, which Natalie and I are talking about how to make more of that. Um, but it takes quite a lot of courage to do that. And, but I, I agree with you, we have to find that courage because people are absolutely incensed by what the bankers have got away with. And we have a policy that would address that. Um, we've also got the citizens' income, which would get around a lot of the problems people are facing with 
um, insecurity and with low wages and just with the fact that they, they can be made vulnerable at work with a citizen's income, they would have a, a, an automatic payment that was theirs as a citizen, which they didn't have to go through any work criteria to receive, and this would provide a sort of basic security which would transform our society, I believe. And the, th the third one is land value tax, which would basically say that land is, a, is a, a common resource. If you happen to be the lucky person that owns land, you should pay a tax for the privilege rather than actually us subsidising your income as we do at the moment through agricultural income payments. So um, that, again, would, would provide money to, to provide a basic income for everybody. So I think that's a radical transformation of our economic system, which probably you don't know about, but you know, hopefully you can, you can find out more about now. Um, I think that our job basically is, is to challenge this construction of the politics of austerity, which, which is a choice. It's a political choice. I completely agree with you. You know, the, the banks got us into this mess, and immediately people who, who could see an opportunity there, the right wing, leapt on this and created this idea there is no alternative to austerity. And this is just a, a mistaken view of how the economy works, which unfortunately nobody has challenged effectively and, and I'm, I'm terribly disappointed that the Labour Party for example has made no attempt to challenge that and are just accepting it and that's really why we claim to be the real alternative because we are the people that are saying no you don't have to have the politics of austerity um, I, I, I mean I've never claimed to be a socialist and, and I don't think I, I am a socialist in the sense that that's understood now because I think I'm a sort of 19th century socialist really you know at which time you know, I would have been there with William Morris except I never have enough time to get an allotment. But, you know, um, I would have been there when it was all about assets, not, not fighting for the right to march, uh, not marching for the right to work, I mean, not, you know, focusing on improving conditions, but actually making a claim on assets, which I think is a much more radical position and is at the heart of, of our economic policy. Thank you. Right, who should we go for? Okay. Um, there's a woman right at the back there, please. Thank you. Um, this is kind of a, a two-part question um, about um, potential for um, Green and PFAR. First is, what resources can the National British Party, uh, um, the National Green Party, or you know, and Europe by resources to assist the election of Green and PFAR? say no, green politicians would not betray you because it's just a totally different reason for doing politics. Why has Don Foster betrayed you? You know, was it for power? Was it for money? Well, the reason we're in politics is because we want to change the world and make it a better place. So, I gen you know, perhaps I sound naive, but I just think green politics is totally different. And what would this betrayal mean? Why should I turn against everything I've believed all my life? So, that just isn't going to happen. And in terms of getting a green MP, 
the key thing is getting the right candidates. And Natalie can explain about the system we've got for, for focusing on target seats. Do we have a target seat in the southwest yet? Um, it was still in the process. Yeah, so if Bath wants to win, you can become a target seat and then you get the sort of support that Natalie's shown me with my European campaign. So that, that's a real possibility. Okay, well, I, I might as well answer, finish on from that one. Um, 2015 for the Green Party, the Westminster election, is going to be unique. Because I stood in 2010 in Hoban and St Pancras, the central London area where I live, and we actually had um, 10 hustings. It's a very political place, Hoban and St Pancras. So the four of us candidates went round to meetings like this, 10 different meetings in about three weeks, which means we got to know each other really well. I got to know the Tory much, much more than I wanted, ever wanted to. <laughs> but what happened in 2010 when I was doing those hustings was actually I got very well treated by the media I got very well treated by the audiences and lots of people said, oh, isn't it nice, the Greens here, and she makes lots of sense. And isn't that, she probably won that debate, isn't that nice? Condescension central. And I couldn't get up in 2010 and say, if you elect me as your MP, I will do this, this and this. Because I had, had I said that, everyone would have laughed. But there's something different about 2015. Because in 2015, we are a parliamentary party. In 2010, we elected Caroline Lucas to Brighton Pavilion. We beat first past the post that pretty well all the experts said, you're never going to do it, you're not going to beat first past the post. And so in 2015, what we can say to the people of Bath, to the people of anywhere in the country, Brighton Pavilion did it, you can do it too. And that's believable now in a way that it wasn't in 2010. Now, you asked about resources, and um, Molly is right to say, you know, I'm a resource. I get shipped around the country an awful lot as a resource. What we don't have is lots of money, and I can't tell you that London, you know, Green Party headquarters, our humble little office in old, near Old Street Tube, is going to be able to send you lots of money. And that ties into the, to the earlier question, because we're not funded by the city we're not funded by giant multinational companies. We haven't got lords with huge landholdings with money coming out their ears shoveling us money. But what we have is enthusiasm and energy and ideas. And what that can do is deliver you volunteers and deliver you shoe leather. So I can't promise you money. I would be utterly lying if I did. But I can promise you enthusiasm and support and encouragement. And... The question of what's different. Well, if you want to be an MP or even a councillor or, or an MEP, and you just fancy the idea of wearing a suit and swanning round Westminster or swanning round Brussels or swanning round your local council chamber, if you just think that would be a nice kind of life that you sort of enjoy, you don't join the Green Party. Because you can get elected as a Green, we've shown that at every level, but you have to work mighty hard to do it. And you've done it because you believe in what you're doing. You haven't done it because you'd like to swan round a suit and you think that looks like a kind of life you sort of enjoy. We do it because we're really passionate about it. And I think, thinking about the Lib Dems, I don't know all of your individual cases, but I think 
If we think about one thing about the Lib Dems, and that's their policy on the replacement for Trident nuclear weapons. Now, we believe we would get rid of Trident nuclear weapons and not replace them immediately. And it's very easy, one of the things when you say that, it's very easy, you'd save about 100 billion pounds, which even these days is fairly serious money, even after the bankers' debt. And you can have a lot of fun going, I'd spend it on schools or I'd spend it on hospitals or I'd spend it on whatever, and that's lots of fun. But I actually want to go back to an earlier principle and say why I want to get rid of Trident nuclear weapons. is because they are hideous weapons of mass destruction. And I cannot imagine a circumstance in which a sane British Prime Minister would use, would use the nuclear button. And I very much hope no one in this room could either. And if that's the case, why do we have those hideous weapons of mass destruction? We have no reason to have them, even beyond all the arguments of what you can spend the money on instead. But I don't know if you know what the, uh, the Lib Dem policy on the replacement for Trident is. They say, oh, the Tories and Labour say they want four submarines carrying the new replacement Trident nuclear missiles. We only want three. <laughs> and I think, really, that subs the, subs the Lib Dems up in one. Thank you, Natalie. I'm just going to say one thing um, before we go on to the next question, which is that... So I'll stand up. Uh, we're talking about getting a Green MP elected in Bath in 2015. We'll be actually doing our selection process soon. We want to see lots of people put themselves forward. And that's only going to happen if we get all of you to join, because we're going to need lots of people joining this party in Bath to actually get the uh, legs out there to deliver leaflets and do all the work and to stand as candidates and to be prepared to go to Parliament and to be in the Council. That's what we're looking for you to come and join us for. Right, let's see some hands up. Uh, Richard at the back. Okay. Thank you. <coughs> I was Green Party candidate for North Somerset in the general election of 1979. My question is about nuclear power and nuclear point. A little bit of uh, geography, first of all. Bristol Channel well known as being the place where we get the 147 ball. Any water coming into that channel is magnified in a huge effect because of the shape of the physical channel. In Greenland, we're using several hundred billion tons of ice every year, and that is having a huge effect on the weight of Greenland on the continental shelf, or the undersea shelf as it is. This will affect the, the Mid-Atlantic Bridge, which is where Iceland lies, which is volcanic, as we all know. And the Mid-Atlantic Bridge is a well-known area of earthquakes. Now, those are going to increase hugely as, the, as Greenland ice melts. And we already know that in 1606 we had a tsunami here in the Bristol Channel, which would have traveled at 40 miles an hour and flooded 25 feet deep. In Fukushima at the moment, the meltdown is continuing in the three reactors that exploded. Japanese children are getting, many of them getting thyroid cancer, and a lot of the population of Japan is going to be wiped out fairly soon. This is all being suppressed by the national media, but if you want to find out the truth, go to ENE News online, 
and you'll see what is really going on in Fukushima. Nuclear power should be finished immediately, as the Germans have opted to do because Angela Merkel's husband is a nuclear engineer. Okay, let's have another question. A woman? Right at the back there. Thank you. I want to raise a question around the sustainable economy. I think there's always a danger in the bashing the bankers, which I'll do with the best of you any time, that we bash business at large. And while I would love to move to other models of business, um, which were based much more on common ownership, that's not realistic in the near future. But it seems to me that there are a number of organizations which are doing relatively good things. Marks and Spencer's Plan A because there is no Plan B. GE's Eco-Imagination Program, which may not be driving the business, but it's a significant strand of the business. So I'm really interested in how the Green Party positions itself to work with and encourage and develop all that's best in business, because there is some good stuff happening, and get that message into the mainstream, because the messages that come from business about how doing things right can also be right for the bottom line, is, is a really, really important thing to do. And I think that's probably from right in this field as well. Actually, take, one, take one more, take one more question. One more question, a man. There's a gentleman over here, if you hang up for him. Hello. <coughs> Tim Folder, uh, yeah, I was a Liberal Democrat, and uh, um, I think it's very easy, it's actually very easy to um, sort of, uh, fire cheap shots at the Liberal Democrats. Um, they started out when I sort of joined as a, like an alternative, a different way. The realities of getting into power, you know, the old cliche that, uh, you know, that power corrupts absolutely, you know, it's, um, it's all very well and easy to say, you know, to have the luxury of not being in power, to, you know, say all this great stuff, but how are you going to sort of resolve the fact that when you get into power, it's going to be a very difficult place to be. You're going to have to make lots of compromises. Unless you get, you know, a 95% majority, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. And so you're going to have to make compromise. How are you going to resolve that? And also, the gentleman over there, I think the Green Party has a PR problem. What the Lib Dems have, they have a PR problem. They've never been in power before. And suddenly they're having to deal with a whole load of PR stuff, which they're, you know, clearly fudging it quite badly. How are you going to deal with that? Thank you. Right. Okay. Who wants to take that? All right. Well, I'll, I'll start with that one in terms of it's a really interesting question of how you maintain your principles. If, say, we were, you know, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but at the next election, Labour is the biggest party, but not a majority, and we could give them enough to have a majority. And my answer to that. Obviously, it would depend on the exact circumstances, but what the Scottish Greens did very successfully was a confidence and supply agreement. Now, what that means in simple terms is that you say, 
you would hold, say, the Labor Party, ensure that they had stable government, you wouldn't vote against them in a confidence vote, and you'd vote to get the budget through. But what you would do is reserve the right on every other issue to vote according to your own conscience. Now, the difference between a confidence and supply agreement and a coalition is that you wouldn't get the fancy ministerial cars. You wouldn't get the chance to actually be there governing things. But you would be able to continue to vote on everything except confidence and supply according to what you believed in. And that, I think, is, shows the different green approach to politics as opposed to the Lib Dem approach to politics. I mean, one of the things that I found fighting elections against Lib Dems up and down the country is there really are two sorts of Lib Dems. There's Lib Dems with whom I have very few on the policy issues, very few differences at all. You'll find there's Lib Dems in one place that you know are all involved in transition towns and are all doing good things to encourage walking and cycling. But in the neighbouring county, there's Lib Dems who think airport development is definitely the way to go. And what you've found is lots of people have joined the Lib Dems as a way of getting elected. And they've always been two sides of the Lib Dems. And what we're seeing you know, is that split. Now, I'm not saying there's not differences of opinion within the Green Party about various things. Of course there are. But there is some basic Green principles, which I think I can come to, to a couple of statements that everybody in the Green Party would agree with. And that is that we're currently living as though we had three planets here in Britain. Each year we consume the resources of three planets. And we have to get back to one planet living. And I think everybody in the Green Party understands that. And secondly, what we acknowledge is that, as I was talking about with food banks, with fuel poverty, everyone in the Green Party would acknowledge the fact that you can't just say to the whole of society, you've all got to cut back. You've all got to cut two-thirds off. Actually, the wealthy people, the people who are consuming lots and lots of resources, have to give up lots more, far, far more. And some people at the bottom have to be lifted up. And, of course, when you put that on a global scale, that's even vastly more true. It's the old contraction and convergence that has to happen. So the Green Party, there is a foundational philosophy underlying it that I don't think has ever been true of the Lib Dems. Um, on the question on the economy, I think the kind of model that we need to work towards, small local economies money going round and round in the local economy, that's where we have to get to. We obviously can't get to it just like that. But it is happening in all sorts of little examples. And I'll give you an example of I'm a member of the People's Supermarket, which some of you might have seen in, in uh, programmes on television. It's a cooperative that's a small local food store, um, looks like a Tesco Metro or Sainsbury's, and that, that, uh, local in that sort of size. But... It's a cooperative owned by the people who shop there. We try and use small local suppliers, so one guy in Kent does all of our potatoes, another guy uh, in Essex does all of our tomatoes. Uh, food that's about to go to waste, we cook up in the premises into ready meals or into conserves or chutneys or whatever, so we've cut the waste down as much as we can. And all of the cooperative members do their time behind the till, so we cut our, our wage bill. So you will find me behind the till for my four hours a month. And that's a great model. 
that nearly goes broke every six months. And the reason it nearly goes broke every six months is that we are paying full business rates. We're paying exactly the same rates as Tesco would pay for the same amount of space. And what we have to do, Molly was talking about land value tax, we need to adjust things around so that the big companies are paying their fair share for the damage they do and we're encouraging companies like that to flourish. And that's how you start to adjust the ecology towards the local, towards the community-owned, towards the small business, away from the big business. And that's an adjustment process. And the other thing you do is you create decent rules so that you know, Marks and Spencers, if they're doing good things about fisheries or something, other companies are forced to do the same thing too. So people, the, 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 the relatively good companies can't be out-competed by the absolute disaster companies. So that's how you start to readjust things in the right direction, and it's a gradual process. But ultimately, you know, I think the supermarket model is no answer. The idea of having you know, three distribution centres around the country that you ship everything out from and only big suppliers can mostly go into it is no answer. We can't do that in the long run. Um, nuclear, I think, I've already covered. Nuclear, there are all of the issues you've raised, but it doesn't make sense in terms of cost or in terms of time. Nuclear is a new... The Economist had a front page about a year ago that said the fall of nuclear... And if the economists declared nuclear dead, I think we can pretty well go for nuclear dead. <laughs> I'll start with nuclear, because before I became an economist, I spent 10 years working um, on the nuclear issue. And I think it's one of the things that most clearly makes us distinct and makes us able to claim that we as Greens are the real alternative, because we're, we're solidly against nuclear. And I sometimes worry that, you know, the sort of siren voices saying it's, it's useful in the transition might come across and influence us, but there's, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. We, we are and remain committed in our opposition to nuclear power. And I think an important reason for this that often isn't discussed is the health effects every day from having a nuclear industry. The routine emissions of radionuclides are causing cancers every single day, not just in Fukushima, but Hinkley and Oldbury that, are, that I live downwind from. Um, and, you know, this is a bit of a nerdy area. I spent 10 years doing it and then I gave up because it was very depressing. But... Um, the model, the health model that, that the estimates of cancers cause, because everybody accepts that nuclear causes cancer, but the, the number is predicted by a health model, and that model was actually devised before DNA was discovered, and they are refusing to revise it for obvious reasons. Anyway, let's, let's put that sad one to rest. Um, so, coming to your question about what it would be like to be a Lib Dem, that's the stuff of my nightmares. No, um, I think... When people talk about political compromise, they often use that phrase, the art of the possible, don't they? And I like to think about that phrase in a completely different way, because I think one of the things we're trying to do as Greens is exactly question what is possible. And there's a complete consensus about what's possible and what's not possible. Like Natalie said about railways, you know, oh, that's just not possible, we're told. Our job as a political movement is to challenge what is possible and to give people completely different and inspiring ideas about what is politically possible. And that's a much more important job than deciding what deal you'll do when you get close to the doors of number 10. Um, and coming to, to Marks and Spencer and the Plan A, um, 
you know, Jonathan Porritt spent a lot of time doing that, and there are a lot of Greens who work on that kind of thing. But at the end of his 10 years of working very hard with corporations, his conclusion was that he hadn't actually made very much progress. And I think he was really quite disillusioned because the focus was still very much on the bottom line. And if environmental um, priorities were included at all, they were only included as a way of getting to a, a better bottom line. And the reason for that is that company legislation says that's what companies have to do. They have to maximise returns to shareholders. And so we've got a problem right there, a problem that, that we propose to change. So you can, as a corporation, have environmental and social objectives. Of course, you, you can already as a co-op. So, you know, the John Lewis Partnership has as its primary aim the happiness of its workers. What a wonderful place it would be to work. And that's why everybody wants a job there, right? And you also get the value if you work at John Lewis. So you get that, that dividend every year. Um, I mean, the problem is if you're a corporation and you're, you're looking at the environmental issue, you are going to come up with something like Plan A. Because the way Marks and Spencers cut their carbon emissions through Plan A was through offshoring production. And then the CO2 figures didn't show in their accounts, just like our CO2 <coughs> figures don't show in our national accounts if we use products made in China. So the trouble is there's always that temptation to, to work with the figures rather than having that genuine commitment. So... Yes, it's great when those things are improved, but I actually think there's, there's, there's that problem inherent in the, in the corporation model. And there's also the problem that if you're trying to extract the maximum value from your business, you are always going to be cutting environmental and social quality. That temptation will always be there, which is why I would rather have a model that was, that was based around cooperatives so that the value is shared fairly with the employees and you have a different kind of in, inherent incentive inside the business model. Thank you, Molly. All right. I can see one or two people want to leave now. We're going to, we'll, we'll, we'll aim to wrap up questions in about 10 to 15 minutes. If people do want to leave, I'll just point out that there are buckets for donations there, so we would like to have a bit of money to pay for the room. Uh, I can see one, two, three, four. I can see quite a few hands going up now. Can we take all the questions and put it together? Yeah. Okay. No, there, yeah. no, there yeah. are. There are. Yeah, do you want to? Okay. Let's see your hands first of all. Should we take one uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Take okay. all the questions there are yeah. and then wrap the, the right. lot together. Okay, right here. Could you say something about the Greens policy on international issues and also on education with regard to things? Okay. Did everyone hear that? No. Uh, can you say something about the green policies on international issues and about education and faith schools? Okay, let's have a man. Any, any, no men? <laughs> right at back there, Greg. Right, I just want to ask you a question about uh, money in politics because it seems to me that an awful lot of MPs and, and parliamentarians now have commercial interests while, while they are sitting in parliament or immediately afterwards. I don't know, for example, that Mr. Alan Milburn, who is now chair of the uh, company that provides our local one money one service, but was the, was the Labour House Secretary mm -hmm. and uh, locally, Mr. Rhys Malcolm, I see, pays himself over £100,000 a year for being um, uh, an investment uh, advisor, uh, which he has to say, but he doesn't have to say who he's advising or, or exactly what he's taking money for. But do we have a policy about this? Okay, we're going to take a batch of questions. So, uh, young lady at the back there. Oh, yeah. Um, I have a 19-year-old son okay. who's ex-university. Um, if you look around this room, you can count the number of people 
what, how are you going to reach our very disillusioned £9,000 a year for you paying young people? Uh, please don't say Twitter because they don't use it. No, they don't. Okay. I know we have one of our young. <laughs> so you do. Not so young. Yes, no, you, I was looking you behind a, you, actually. Jim, Jim do you have a question? You, don't worry. Yeah. Um, yes? I, I guess I'd like to ask about the same thing a little bit, but I, I kind of like to respond a little bit to what people have been saying about compromise, about compromise of power. I think, for me, the Green Party, one of their great strengths is they see themselves as part of a wider movement, um, and whether that's um, Natalie on the tills at the People's Supermarket, I know this because... I one day went into the people's supermarket and was served by Nancy. I was so starstruck that I forgot my pen. Or whether it's Caroline Lucas on the front line in Borkham resisting fracking, defending her community close to her. Um, and I think, I think that's really powerful, and I think it's what the Labour Party has lost. It's where it started out, defending all the workers and being a real trade union movement, and it's really lost it and it's alienated its whole support. Um, and I think, for me, that's kind of what I'd like to ask. I think, like, young people, uh, people say young people are dissolution from politics. Like, that's not true. Like, young people know, know we're being screwed over. I pay £9,000 a year to go to university. Um, and there's lots of people around me very frustrated by it. But the reason we don't engage with it is because we've been betrayed so many times. We've had Nick Clegg come and say, I'll fight for you. And we've had Nick Clegg say, you're going to pay £9,000 a year in fees. Um, so I guess it's... But for me, I see the Green Party's role as part of a wider movement, a really key way of engaging with young people. Young people are activists, young people are volunteering, and let, young people are looking for ways they can get green jobs and ways they can have a career that satisfies their, and just is true to their values. So I'm, I want to ask how, how is the Green Party's election campaign, which is ultimately something that a lot of young people feel is not going to do them any good and not going to help them out very much, how is that going to engage with this sort of wider movement? Thank you. Um, that's, that's Tim Youngman, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Tom, Tom Youngman, uh, the name to look out for. Um, he other... is on Twitter because I follow him. <laughs> <laughs> any, any other questions? Okay, let's try to be brief. Yes? Yeah. Great question. Uh, do you think it's feasible? Do you think it's feasible for the Green Party to model job sharing in the next general election? Any, any job required job sharing yes, can, can be. And then we would have a seat of green leather on channel 81. <laughs> Okay, right, that's, that's excellent. We've got about ten minutes, I think. So All right, okay, I'll, 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 I'll go. To start with the job sharing, uh, oddly enough, job sharing MPs is a policy that oh, about three conferences back we got a lot of attention for. Uh, I actually was the person who moved the motion to make it our party policy, uh, and I was rather excited to wake up on the Today programme and hear that it was one of the top stories in the Today programme the morning of conference. You know, we have a huge problem, and this ties back to actually also the question about the problems of all of our politicians who are, you know, moonlighting in second and third jobs. We lack, absolutely lack, a parliament that represents us that looks like us. We have a cabinet of millionaires. We have a huge numbers of people educated at fee-paying schools. We have 
precious, precious few bus drivers, um, dinner ladies, people from a wide range of backgrounds in Parliament. John introduced me as a feminist, and one of the things that still absolutely horrifies me is we still only have 22% female MPs. We have a tiny handful of MPs with disabilities, which doesn't represent the general population at all. And job sharing is one way that we could open up Parliament to lots more different people who, for reasons of caring responsibilities, for reasons of disability, for reasons maybe if they're a brain surgeon and would like to keep their skills. There's a whole lot of reasons why job sharing is a really good idea, and that's something we're championing. Um, at the moment, the law simply doesn't allow you to do it. There's been one attempt, and it was thrown out, and there's at the moment no legal mechanism. We're certainly fighting to change the law. Um, and coming back to that broader question about money in politics and the fact that we have a huge problem with MPs who are either while they're, they're in Parliament or after they've left Parliament are doing things like working for the arms industry. We have to say no and we have to educate the voters so they know what's going on. And we also have to, when we look at our civil service, we have a huge problem with the civil service. There was this great idea we have to draw on the skills of the private sector. So we get lots of people in from Goldman Sachs to run you know, at high levels in the Treasury, because they're such experts. And we have to say no, that's not the way forward. And we have to say no to MPs holding jobs that you know, return them hundreds of thousands of pounds more than their salary. We just have to say that's unacceptable. Um, Appealing to young people, I very much agree with what you said about the Green movement. What I always say is the Green Party is the political wing of the Green movement, the small G Green movement. And I'd include in that everything from UK Uncut and Occupy through Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth to, even though they mightn't always recognise it, the CPRE and the RSPB. You can see why I'm, I'm putting my hand out to the right here. Because what those, those organisations have done, particularly everything from Greenpeace to the right, over the past few years has adopted a lobbying model. They've all too often said to Green parties, oh, we can't talk to you or we can't get too close to you because we've got to lob lobby our Labour government or we've got to lobby our local Tory council and so we can't get too close to you. And we've seen where that lobbying model got us got us our greenest government ever. <laughs> Remember that? And so there is a recognition among those people who do what you might call small p politics that that model hasn't worked and they have to look at alternative options. And this is a message for young people and possibly slightly older members of the RSPB that if you want people who are actually green in Parliament, in Brussels in your local council, you actually have to elect Greens. That's the only way you get them. And I think the problem of disillusion with young people is a real problem. But I think it's going to change because a few years ago, 
Most people at university had their head down and thought, you know, if I really concentrate on my studies and I do lots of extracurricular activities and I do work experience, I'll get a job and a decent job and that's what I've got to do. The reality is that just doesn't work for large numbers of people anymore. And increasingly they recognise it. We saw the loss of the EMA, the Education Maintenance Allowance. And I was actually at a sixth form college a few days before what's so-called student riots in London in 2010. And we had a question time style event with some local councillors. And this is a sixth form college, some rather boring local councillors and me. And we had 160 people came at that sixth form college question time. And they were angry. And I think more and more people are, young people are angry. And at the moment they're directing it towards Occupy and UK Uncut, and that's great. But what we've also got to say to them is the decisions are finally made in Brussels, in Westminster, in your local council. And you need your people there, just rallying and lobbying and fighting and telling them this isn't enough, won't do it. You've actually got to get your people there. And one of the things I was talking about, the bedroom tax. And at various meetings about the bedroom tax up and down the country, I've had some people who say, isn't it terrible it doesn't apply to pensioners? And I say, no, it isn't. Don't say that you're, because your 75-year-old neighbour has an extra bedroom, they should have to pay the tax too. But you do need to recognise there's a reason why lots of the austerity measures haven't hit pensioners. It's because older people tend to vote and younger people don't. And we need to explain to younger people, to get your voice heard, you've just got to vote. And I understand the real disillusion and the lots of feeling that there's no point. And people often say to me, I've gone into the ballot box and there's no green and there was no one I could vote for. But what I always say is always go to the ballot box. And if there's no one on that ballot paper you feel like you can vote for, at least write a rude word on the ballot paper. Because that way you're not getting counted as the one of the, oh, I'm happy enough with things are, so I didn't bother going to the polling station. And we have to get it across to people, that's the message they're sending when they don't vote. And that's what we've really got to do. Um, I was asked about international policies. And, okay, international policies in two minutes. Um, in simple terms, we have to stop thinking of ourselves as the world's policemen. After Iraq, after Afghanistan, after those disasters, we have to stop unilateral international action. And the Syria vote was a really encouraging step, a real chance to hit the reset button and say enough. And I think we're heading in the right direction on that, although we've still got a long way to go. But the final issue I'd like to focus on is a really important international issue that doesn't get enough attention. I was recently at a protest for the, against the London Arms Fair. We have a huge defence, so-called, i.e. arms industry in Britain. We have let £4 billion worth of arms contracts to Saudi Arabia in the past four years. We are pouring fuel on the flames in scores of countries around the world. We're some of the biggest arms traders, arms dealers, to Central and West Africa. And if there's one thing Central and West Africa don't need, it's more arms being poured into the situations. So, you know, we need to 
it's an old line but a good one, turn swords into plowshares, turn those arms factories into wind turbines or solar panel factories or good things, things that contribute positively to the common good of Britain, the common good of the world. And I suppose that's the line I'd like to finish on. We need to reshape our society so it's working for the common good of everybody in Britain and around the world. We're a wealthy country. There's enough resources in the world for everybody to have enough, to have a decent life. We can do that. We have to have the vision of doing that. And if we do that, we can change the world and end up where we are dealing for the common good of everybody. Thank you. I claim my five minutes, even though we're late now. Um, I'll also quickly say something in response to Tom's point. I work in university, so I have this conversation with young people all the time. And I don't think they're actually disillusioned with politics. I think what they're disillusioned with is the party system. And, you know, who in this room wouldn't share that with them, quite honestly? I think um, our democracy is in real trouble right now. And one of the reasons for that is the issue that was raised about money and um, money in politics. Um, but also it's that, that people have just lost faith in democracy and they're actually not prepared to pay for it. I find this all the time in my local council. You know, there's reviews that go on to reduce the number of councillors. And... The objective is basically just to save money, and we have to remind, especially conservatives in the chamber, no, if, if you want a democratic system, it does cost some money. Actually, councils are really cheap, you know, four or five thousand pounds for that job. But nonetheless, you do have to, if, if you're not going to have party funding from big donors, you do have to pay for, for political parties through government money. And if you want democracy, then it, it does take that money to pay for it. But um, I, th I think, I mean, I agree with what Natalie said about, about young people and politics, but I also think, I mean, talk, talking to them, it's, it's really interesting, and I feel like I need to stand back a bit and say, well, I'm, I'm really interested in what you're going to do. I think our way of doing politics is kind of a bit moribund, and, and they're just not interested, and they're, they're doing something different and exciting and interesting, and I'm, I'm watching how that's developing, and I, I, I find it really encouraging, actually. It's, it's much more about doing it yourself and engagement and, and genuine participatory democracy and less about electing representatives and, and letting them get on with it. And I think that's going somewhere good. I just think it hasn't quite become obvious yet in terms of expressing itself in a powerful way. But I, oh yeah, you're agreeing with me, excellent. I, I, I'm, I'm enthused about that. I'm not pessimistic about young people at all. It'd be great if they're all signed on to vote, especially Exeter, please get your son signed on to vote for me though. Um, yeah, so um, I think the other thing about politics is we have to stop thinking about it as something other people do. You know, we talk about the political <coughs> class and we, we sort of moan about politicians and people moan about me as a politician and I feel like saying, well, why do you think I'm a politician? Why aren't you the politician? You know, if there's nobody there who you think you should vote for when you go to the ballot box, then next time you should put your name on that ballot paper. <laughs> Democracy's our responsibility. It's not something other people do. Um, I won't... Um, say too much about the international issues because I, I completely agree with what Natalie said but I do think that one of the key problems in terms of what's going wrong in the world is that we somehow have this post-colonial attitude that the resources of the world belong to us and we can just go and take them and the wars we've seen are a consequence of that and as resources become exhausted there's going to be more wars fought about resources until we learn to accept that resources belong to the people in those countries and we have to learn to live within the limits of our own resources. 
And just to finish, because it's appropriate in this building particularly, I mean, I am a Quaker myself, and one of the things I like particularly about living in Wales is that the word for peace is an action word. Hedu means make peace. And I think we should very much see that as our approach to international relations, making peace, because it doesn't happen on its own. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. Sorry. I, I, I was, I was aware of my, I was having my, the clock being waved at me. Okay. Well, I mean, basically, um, education policy. We're utterly opposed to free schools, academies. We believe in local community schools, um, fee-paying schools. We believe that we should remove all tax benefits, all breaks they get on VAT, and all of those kind of special privileges which would largely get rid of but not entirely eliminate fee-paying schools. Um, so that's the framework. We believe in local community schools and the community decides how the school is operated and that's up to the community to decide. And we think that everyone should have a good local, what we call human-sized school near them. So that means ideally you can walk or cycle to it anywhere where that's a reasonable option. And it's of a size that, well, to put it simply, the head teacher knows the name of everybody there because people need that sort of community place to thrive and to feel like they're being treated as a human being. So that's the kind of schooling system that we believe in. So it's up to the community. Thank you. Did you want to say anything on that, Molly? No. <coughs> okay, thank you very much. I think we've had a fantastic evening. It's been a really interesting discussion. And can I just ask you to uh, thank our two speakers? And thank you. Can I just say two things very quickly? One is that, uh, as I said before, what we really need more than anything else is for you to actually be joining this party because if we're going to achieve any of the things that we've been hearing tonight, we won't do that without people being members of the party, taking part in the discussions and going out and doing all the work we need to do. And the second thing we do need is we need money because we can't pay for meetings like this. We can't run election campaigns, produce leaflets like this, without some money to do it with. We're not asking for lots. We're asking for small amounts from all of you. We don't rely on large business. We don't rely on any other large organisations. We ask our members and our supporters to keep the party going. So when you're going out, there are buckets there. Please do put some money in. Thank you very much. Yeah.